So I don't know about your experience, um, but my experience uh, growing up and being around it is that the gravitational pull of religion uh, bends towards um, behavioral conformability, <laughs> like conformity. Uh, that is, uh, this is how we do it here. If you're going to be a part of this religion, if you're going to be a part of this church, if you're going to be a part of this group, you need to look a certain way, you need to act a certain way, you need to not do certain things. And this is kind of how, um, and, and there's probably a lot of reasons for this, but, but that, that bend towards conformity has been my experience with what most religion does. In fact, if you show up into some sort of brand new or religious environment, whether that is a drastic change of like, oh, I'm done with this religion, I'm gonna go up and try this one, or even something as small as switching from one church to another church inside of the same religion. Like each place seems to have its own, this is the way we all behave the same. And a lot of times within that, there's this element of everybody's welcome, but you've only got a certain amount of time to start behaving the way that we behave. <laughs> and then you become less welcome. Now, I don't know if that's been your experience or not, but um, it may be the reason that some of you at some point in life have decided or thought about leaving the church, right? When it comes to uh, these things, these conformities, these rules that, that, that you couldn't keep the rules, you didn't want to keep the rules, right? The rules didn't make sense to you, why everybody had to do certain things, and it just didn't seem like it really affected any of your actual life. And so there was that element maybe that you wanted to walk away. Um, in fact, once you get outside of these little bubbles that seem to create themselves everywhere, a lot of people get outside of their bubble and they look back at it and they start to look at the behaviors and the things that were the norms and they're looking at it and they're like, hmm, that was kind of weird. It didn't seem weird when I was in it. When I was in it, it made sense. But now that I'm like a part away from it and I get some views of other things going on, that seems kind of Seems kind of weird, but it was just the flow of the community. And most of the time, those, those actions, those things that they want you to conform to, most of the time are fairly harmless, but not always. There are times that it causes a great deal of harm. There are people who have to spend a lifetime like healing from some of their experiences inside of some of these environments. And, and, and this is true in every single religious system. I mean, yes, I could sit here and tell you a whole lot about in the whole Christian bubble, uh, churches and leaders just abusing things and causing a lot of damage. This isn't just in Christianity. This is in every religious system. Uh, and there are expected behaviors and some sort of condemnation that goes along with not meeting those expected uh, behaviors, right? Now, with that as a backdrop, which is such a fun backdrop, aren't you glad you got out from under your covers in bed this morning to come talk about that kind of thing? Uh, but with that as a backdrop, one of the most perplexing, um, irreverent, uh, paradigm-shifting, mind-blowing statements that Jesus ever made and the problem that we as, uh, as modern readers, uh, unfamiliar with and not steeped in first century Judaism, uh, that we read statements like this as we go through the Bible and we just kind of blow past it. It doesn't really mean a whole lot to us. It doesn't really land with any sort of impact. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm telling you, when Jesus said this, 
Like it was, there was a gasp in the crowd. I mean, this was world changing. And in context, it was part of the reason that from when he said this on, that the religious leaders plotted to kill Jesus (laughs) because of this statement. Here's what he said. We find this in Mark chapter two, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. (gasps) You all don't seem so impressed. Doesn't seem like such a big deal to (laughs) y'all, right? Really? That's the statement. Who cares? Let's just keep going. You know, can we talk about, can you say something that applies to my actual life? Like we don't even practice the Sabbath, let alone much about it. But this was a paradigm shift of epic proportions when Jesus said this, because the Sabbath was what differentiated the Jewish culture and the Jewish people from every other culture at the time. Even if you were a visitor uh, or a foreigner who was coming to stay with someone uh, who was part of the, uh, of the Jewish nation, you would have to practice the Sabbath, even if you didn't buy into the whole Jewish God part of it. But the bottom line for Jesus was this, people are more important than the Sabbath, right? But, but the way that it had been presented up to that point by the religious system was the Sabbath is everything, and because, the, you know, and because uh, that, that, is how, that is how we are connected to God, that is how we find ourselves being holy again, um, that, that, that therefore you, you can't violate the Sabbath. We've got to hold to that rule for absolutely everything. You can't violate, violate it. But what is, what is true of the Sabbath, as Jesus said in that statement, turns out to be true of the entire law the entire Old Testament law, right? Because Jesus comes along and says, you don't understand God. You don't understand how God operates because the Sabbath was made for you, for you. That means it's to act in service to you. And that was true for the whole law, but religious folks get it turned around. The religious folks of that day and the religious folks of this day. You know, with preachers all over the place, me included, leading the way of messing up the way God intended things to be. Now, let me, let me put this into a little more modern terminology, since the Sabbath and that phraseology means nothing to any of us, really. Now, here's a little more modern terminology. Imagine if I said it like this. Nobody decides to have children to play with the toys. The children are not for the toys to not be bored and feel left out, right? The toys are for the kids. Nobody says, we've got these toys sitting around and they're not doing anything. We need to have some kids for them. <laughs> like, that's just not the, and it's, a, and it's silly to say, right? Like, it's a ridiculous, nobody would say that. Nobody would think that way, Right? But to go back to Jesus's point, God didn't create us so that there would be someone to keep his rules. See, that's where religious people get really hung up. Like they think are like, okay, the rules, they're the rules. God created the rules. Now all of us, we're made to keep the rules. That's just not at all the way that it goes. God did not create us like that. His commandments are for people because, and we cannot miss this point, this is the underlying foundation of the whole thing. The rules are for people, the law is for people because God is for people. He is for people, right? And specifically, God is for 
you. That's who God is for. God loves you more than he loves his commandments, more than the law that he laid out, right? The rules, the law is not the be all and all. And Jesus uh, ended up being arrested and crucified because he decided he was not going to go along with the way that other people and religious leaders were twisting the word of God to manipulate people, right? Because when religious people use the law of God to manipulate people who are made in the image of God, right? Jesus was quick to remind them, hey, you are now on the wrong side of God. And this goes to the heart of many people's struggle with religion and Christianity because their experiences, it is all about the rules. The rules are the thing. The people have to submit to the rules. It's all about the rules. Whatever it does to people, that doesn't matter. That's just a byproduct we deal with. The rules are the thing. That's why so many people have just decided to walk away from their religion. So today, we are in part three of our series. We started this two weeks ago of uh, Jesus, looking at Jesus through the eyes of Peter, as told by Mark. Um, if this is your first uh, part of the series that you're catching up on, here's what we're doing. Uh, Peter had found himself in prison about 30 years after Jesus had died and was gone. And uh, he had told his story over that 30 years to anybody who would listen. It's what he dedicated his life to doing. Now he's in prison in Rome knowing that he's probably going to die. His traveling companion, a guy named Mark, is with him. And Mark coaxes his Peter's story out of him one more time so that he can record it. And that's where we get Mark, the gospel of Mark. This is actually Peter's account of his life with Jesus. And when Peter gave his account, he gave the main point right up front. He said, I'm gonna lay out all of these pieces and they're gonna come together and they're gonna form this picture that Jesus's message was, the time had come. Everything up to now is leading to this moment that the kingdom of God has come. God is near. And, and Jesus said, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. And that in that context just meant turn, embrace, accept, adjust your life accordingly to this good news. Side note, if your experience with religion and church up to this point has not been good news, it's not the right version. <laughs> it's not Jesus's version of the faith, right? And we left off last week that Jesus basically went through and broke down several barriers between people and God that had been set up by the religious system. And we ended last week looking at him inviting Levi, a tax collector who was uh, a hated person in, for being a servant of the Roman empire, collecting taxes from the Jewish people, turning his back on his own people, calling him, he called Levi. He said, come, follow me. In what was kind of the ultimate example of Jesus saying, this new mindset, this new way, this new thing that I'm establishing, everybody is welcome. Everybody. Even the people who to this point have been <laughs> stiff-armed and shunned and cast out and said, absolutely not. You can't join. Jesus says, yep, those people, this is for them, along with everyone else. And so when, uh, when Jesus said, hey, Levi, follow me, he only had four other followers at the time, right? He had Peter and Andrew and James and John, and it was decision time for those guys. 
Because now if they were to stay with Jesus, they were going to be associated with this tax collector who like sinners were like the bottom rung in society. But then somehow the tax collectors got even below that. <laughs> like they were hated. And so now they had to decide, do we stick with Jesus? But this guy, mm, and now this is what we are. Or do we bail? Do we get out of here? Because the question that arose was this, are there no standards to be held to for people to be able to follow you, Jesus? Will you take anybody, right? But, but they decided we're going to stick with Jesus because up to that point, even though it was very early in Jesus's ministry, they had seen enough and heard enough that they're like, "Eh, this is really bad for us, but there's something about this guy. And so they stick with him. Right? And Matthew says, okay, all right, Jesus, I accept your invitation. Levi, who we didn't know is Matthew, he says, I accept. I'll follow you. Where are we going? And Jesus looks at him and says, we're going to your house. <laughs> to which Peter thought, oh, this just keeps getting worse. <laughs> like, it's bad enough he's hanging out. Now we're going to his house. So here, here, here's what happened. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house. Now, this is wrong on so many levels, right? Because when you ate at somebody's house, uh, it, was, it was a bigger deal than just going over to people's houses for dinner that we have in our culture. Uh, when you ate at somebody's house, it, it was intimate. It was symbolic. It, it, it was essentially a, a stamp of approval and acceptance on who they were and what they did. Everybody knew who was at everyone's house. All of these communities were small. People lived close together. There was no sneaking in and out and be like, oh, well, I'm gonna come over, but don't tell anybody. None of that. Like this was a big deal. It implied acceptance, but it was worse than just eating with Levi, right? It was worse than that because here he says, while he was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciple. And Peter's like, oh, one, we might have been able to slide under the radar, right? We might have been able to get away with one, but now it's, it's, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. Is this what we're going to become? And man, if that isn't an attitude that I've seen replicated over and over and over again in religious circles. Oh man. And I've even dealt with it here at Tapestry. Like we'll have someone come. And there may be something, you know, maybe, maybe they, they're doing something. They're living some way that isn't acceptable with everybody. And one comes and people are like, oh yeah, that's great. We accept, look at us, we love them. And all of a sudden, two, three, four, five more people like that start showing up. Then all of a sudden it's like, whoa, 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 pastor. Is this the church we're becoming? Yeah, this is what religious people like to do. We'll play like we're tolerant. We'll play like we accept you, but not too many of you. And you've got a certain time limit to change to be like us. So listen, here's all these people, all these sinners and tax collectors. So either Jesus or Levi, the story doesn't tell us, invited all of these people over for dinner. And by this time, Jesus had already said and done enough things that he was on the radar of the religious leaders and they were shadowing him. And so they followed him up to Levi's house. Here's what takes place. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, not him, <laughs> not him. They didn't want to talk to him. They asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Implication being, 
One, he's a rabbi, he should know better. That'll make him unclean eating with those people. Two, the real thing that bothered him was, why isn't he eating with us? I mean, we've tried. We can't even get coffee with this guy, right? Let alone sit down and have a meal. And so here, here's what they said. Verse 17, on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. To which I'm sure at that moment, Levi was sitting there, right? And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you calling me sick? I think that was pointed at me, right? But somehow, but somehow to the, to the people who were sitting there, the sinners and the tax collectors eating with Jesus, somehow this wasn't offensive to them, right? Levi was ready to accept who he was, what he had done, the decisions that he made. And, and to think about what hung in the balance of that decision as he was sitting there at that dinner table saying, oh man, he just said something really offensive about me, judged me in front of everybody. Like, this isn't cool. Do I want to stick with this guy or not? Like, is this how it's going to be? Am I going to be shamed the whole time? Do I have a time limit on how I've got to change my behavior? What's going on here? He had this decision that he had to make and he had no idea. What hung in the balance? I mean, we know now on the backside, what hung in the balance was he was on track to be essentially a traitor to his people that would pretty much be forgotten to the world as soon as he died. And instead, he went on to write one of the gospels that thousands of years later, we are reading. And this is one of the ideas that I try to keep in front of you on a regular basis, that when you are making decisions, when it comes to decisions of integrity and morality and directions that you want to go in life, that a lot of times these are not just light decisions just because we can't see what the outcomes mean to us. The reality is, is when you're making decisions in all arenas of your life, you have no idea what hangs in the balance for your future. And if you're just making ideas based on how you feel and what everybody else is doing around you or just what's gonna immediately benefit you or prosper you in the short term, you are going to make decisions that are separate from what it is God has for you. And the sad thing is, is that you will never know what could have been, what God had in store for you, what he could have done with you and your life. So Jesus keeps going. <laughs> Jesus says, I have not called to come the righteous, to, to, to call the righteous, but sinners. To which at this point, it wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners turn to be offended. It was the other four guys, <laughs> right? Peter, Andrew, James, and John. It was their turn to be offended. They're like, wait a minute. Call the sinners. We're good Jewish boys. Like we grew up, we did all the memorization. We follow all the temple system. We do everything we're supposed to do. Like, wait, 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 wait. Are you calling us that? I mean, we're not the same as the tax collectors. Are you calling us sinners? And Jesus is like, yeah. You're, yeah, you're all sinners. All of you fall in to that category. And by the way, you all as sinners, as falling short, you all are invited to join me. So come on, let's not spend time being offended. Let's get on with the show, right? Now, here's what's interesting about this. 
is that in ancient cultures and religions, when you had all the different religions, the different gods and religions of each nation and everything, and they, they weren't really called religions. That's not how it worked back, time, back then. That's more of a modern term that we've put on it. But like all different gods and the way people worshiped and handled their life, people back then didn't evangelize. Right? There was no going around and trying to get people to leave their God or leave their faith to join theirs. No, no, no. What really happened, um, what really happened was it, it was different. Um, because it, back then it was like, well, if you want to cry, yeah, gods were like apps back then. Right? Like if you want your crops to go, we got to grow, we got a God for that. Right? You want your babies to be safe, we got a God for that. Right? You want, you want, you want war to be won? We've got a God for that, right? And so this is how they thought. You didn't ask people to abandon their God for years. You, you just added a God. You just added it. It was like just throwing another burger on the grill, right? Yeah, I got these. Yeah, I need that one too. And you just kind of collected gods. That's how it worked back then, right? Nobody converted from one religion to another. And Jesus comes along and he says, I am inviting you to leave everything in the system that has been built to join this new thing. And I don't know how, if we can really wrap our mind around how revolutionary that idea was when Jesus said it. Right, he says, he says listen, the reason, the reason that Jesus invites everybody is because the time had come. Uh, the world was invited to this brand new kingdom, which is a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom of heart, a kingdom in which God was no longer far away, but God was now close. And it was Jesus's relentless pursuit of sinners and the unrighteous that illustrated and put the exclamation point on the revolutionary nature of this new kingdom. Now, to be sure, the early readers who were steeped in the Jewish cultures, when they read through this, they got that. Like we don't because we're just not there. But they did. They got it. From this incident at Levi's house, you know, to one of Jesus's favorite metaphors. Here, here's what Peter, Peter moves on to, to this. Here, here's what Jesus said. This is one, he said this all the time. Verse 21, Jesus teaching, he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. To which everybody listening was like, yeah, right, yeah, we know that. And everybody knew that because clothes were expensive back then. Like clothes are disposable to us today. But back then, they were super expensive. People didn't throw them away. You fixed them and you fixed them and you, you got a hole, you got a rip, sew it and patch it, sew it and patch it, sew it and patch it, sew it and patch it. That's what you did back then. He says, nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the terror worse. And they're like, yes, 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 Jesus, we know. Yeah, we get it. Jesus says, well, let me tell you something else everybody knows then. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. They're like, yeah, we know. Because old wineskins, they got brittle, they got hard. You put new wine in and all the expansion happens. They break, you got a mess everywhere because he says that. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. And like, yeah, Jesus, we know this. What's your point? What are you getting at? And his point was, listen, this new teaching, this new idea that I'm putting out here for you, like that, that this new worldview is like the new cloth or the new wine. And this version of torn cloth 
and burst wineskins, uh, this vision that he was painting, it punctuated the, pot, the, the impossibility of trying to blend Jesus's new message with the old system. It just wouldn't work. The old system would just fall apart underneath of it. He's essentially saying, listen, you cannot just add to what I, you can't just take what I'm saying and just add it to your existing religious system. You can't. It it highlighted the futility of trying to blend it in with the Roman system and the way they were operating with that. He's like, you can't. He's like, well, I'm I'm, I'm creating a brand new movement that would be called the church. Right? And he came to fulfill, Jesus came to fulfill and retire all of what had come before, all of the law, because that system would no longer work under the new thing. And he came to bring something better. But then before the reader can even begin to digest all of this, as Mark is just writing and writing and writing, right? Peter jumps and he moves along to just few, through a few other narratives, whether and he's just kind of dumping as fast as he can, just trying to get it all out of his mind, right? And so he plunges us into another Sabbath controversy that Jesus runs into. Moving on to chapter three, verse one, he says this, another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. We don't know why it was shriveled. Doesn't matter why it was shriveled. But somehow this guy, everybody was aware of this guy in the room. And somehow this guy, I think had kind of gotten Jesus' attention, you know, caught his eye, gave him that look of, hey, Jesus, I've heard what you can do. And do something for me. Let's talk after service. You know, let's, let's make this happen. And other people had picked up on it, right? So here's what happens, verse two. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And they were watching to see this because their first century application of the law of Moses was to heal somebody on the Sabbath was a sin. It was a violation. If someone was dying, like immediately dying, like drowning or hanging from a cliff ready to fall, you could intervene there. But if whatever they had could wait till tomorrow, you weren't allowed to do anything. No healing on the Sabbath, right? And Jesus interrupts what's going on in the synagogue because he knows what people are looking at and thinking. He interrupts. He says this, Jesus said to the man with a shriveled hand, stand up in front of of everyone. <laughs> How many of you guys would like that? If you were needing something from, <laughs> from God, you asked me, Andy, I need prayer. I'm going through this. And I said, all right, yeah, stand up in front of everybody. <laughs> That'd be the last time you people asked me to pray for anything. <laughs> but here's Jesus. He says, all right, stand up in front of everybody. And it's, and it's details like that that really lend credence to the gospels for me. Because I'm sure Mark was right. And he's like, what do you got? Stand up in front of everybody. Like, you really want to put that in? Like, yeah. And Peter's like, well, yeah. I mean, that's what happened. He told him to stand up in front of everybody. Okay. So he made him stand up. And, and Peter's like, yeah. And he stood up and that guy was embarrassed, but we were all embarrassed. Because now all of a sudden the attention's on Jesus and we're Jesus's guys. So now the attention's on us. And what's he going to do? Because he hasn't had a good track record so far with not causing trouble so far when he's in the religious settings. So we're all kind of taking our steps back to the edge of the crowd so we can make a quick getaway if we need to. You know, they were like, they were like, uh, they were like teenagers who go out in public with their parents. And as soon as the parents start to say or do anything, the teenager's just like, 
I'm not with them, right? Can I get an amen from parents of teenagers? Yeah, that's what the disciples were. As soon as Jesus in the religious setting started saying this stuff, they were just like, <laughs> yeah, they were. So he says, it makes the guy stand up in front of everybody. Then Jesus asked them, the religious leaders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil? Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? Now, this was not a trick question, right? Well, maybe it was a trick question because the real question, the real question he was asking was, why did God give us the law? Why? Right? Is our, is our mission in life to honor and preserve the rules? Right? Or is it something else? Who were the laws of God intended to benefit? Now, there are times in my experience growing up in church that I pretty much had to come to the conclusion uh, that a lot of the laws were meant to benefit God because they certainly didn't seem to benefit me. And I imagine if I had conversations with you, I'm not the only one in the room that's had that feeling when it comes to some of these rules, right? And, and this, was, this was a huge paradigm shift, this question that Jesus asked, because if the laws were for people, then people take precedent over the law. Again, children aren't for toys. Toys are for children. So he asked this question, and here was the brilliant response from the religious leaders. They remained silent. <laughs> that was a, because they knew, they knew the answer. They knew the answer, but they wouldn't say it out loud. You ever get in trouble when you were growing up, get in trouble by your parents and they asked you the question and you knew darn well the answer and they knew you knew the answer, but you couldn't say the answer because as soon as you said the answer, you were uh, held accountable for violating the answer, right? So you just sit there and stare. Till your parent finally gets mad enough to say, answer me, <laughs> right? Don't just sit there and say nothing. Well, this is what these guys did. They knew the second they answered Jesus's question, they were going to be held accountable to their own answer. And so they were like, mm, the best course of action here is to say nothing. So as they sat there, said nothing, responding to Jesus, what was Jesus's response to these guys? Well, it's not too far off of the response of parents when the teenagers aren't responding and they start getting mad. Here, here was Jesus's response. Verse five, he looked around at them in anger. <laughs> Me and Jesus, we got that in common, <laughs> right? Looked at them in anger. He was angry. Uh, he was angry that they had misused his father's words, that they, that they had elevated the law and God's words over people because people were the point. So he looked around at them in anger, deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, the stubbornness of not even being willing to say out loud what they knew in their heart was true. So looking at them in that way, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. And the response the Pharisees gave to this in our modern thinking is so over the top that it seems comical. But in the moment to them, to the readers in first century Judaism, their response made logical sense. Here's their response. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill 
Jesus. <laughs> to which we're reading that, and we're like, wait, what? I mean, run him out of town, sure. You know, fine him maybe. Arrest him, a little extreme, but maybe, go ahead. But kill him? Kill him. You want to murder a man for healing someone on the Sabbath. But listen, here's what they understood. They understood that there was no possible way to blend what Jesus was saying with their institution and their practices. They knew that what he was saying was the end of their thing. Like that was it. A new system was here right? There was no way to do that. And this is, what, this is what religious people have been trying to do ever since. Because there was, no way, there was no way to blend what they were trying to preserve with the kingdom that Jesus had come to establish. There was no way to blend the mindset, the framework, the view of God uh, that, they were, that they were desperately trying to defend and hold on to with the new view mindset of God that, that Jesus was introducing. He had come to reverse the order of just about everything. Everything. The Sabbath, the law, the rules, the tradition. Those things were all given for the benefit of people, not the other way around. And then Peter goes on, drags us through another couple of narratives. And then the strangest things happens. Here's what happened. This is, this is one of the weirdest things in the gospel to me. Peter tells, starts talking about Mary, mother of Jesus. And this is the first time Mary shows up in Peter's narrative, right? And she shows up outside of Capernaum. And she's got Jesus' brothers with her. And there's all this controversy going on around the things that Jesus is saying and doing. And they make their way through the crowd, and they get up close to Jesus, and, he, and, and here's what they do. They try to take Jesus home in an attempt to rescue him from himself, right? They're watching what's happening. They're like, oh my goodness, he's going off the deep end, right? And she says something about Jesus. She says something about her son that parents over generations have wanted to say about their children. And Mark's probably like, when, Mark, when Peter tells Mark, hey, here's what Mary said about Jesus. Mark probably looked up and was like, Peter, are you sure you want to put this in here? Are you sure you want this to be a part of it? And Peter's like, yeah, man, I'm just telling you what happened. So yeah, here we go, right? And what happened was when we asked Mary why she was trying to retrieve Jesus and get him out of there, here was her response. Verse 21, he is out of his mind. <laughs> That's Jesus's mother saying this about him. <laughs> and there are times I've looked at my children and been like, they are out of their mind. <laughs> And my parents said it about me and their parents thought it about them. And Mary said it out loud. And Peter told the world she said it. He is out of his mind. Now this doesn't look good on Mary. It doesn't look good on Jesus. It doesn't look good on the people following him. Why is it in there? The reason is, is because it happened. It happened. When the gospel writers are writing their accounts, they didn't pull any punches. 
They didn't try and sand off the rough edges. They didn't eliminate the parts that made them look bad or stupid or people who had lost their faith. They're like, no, this is what happened. We're putting it in there. And there, right there, where Mary says Jesus is out of his mind is where we're gonna pick the story up next week. But before we go, two quick takeaways. One, if you're a sinner, hint, hint, It's all of us. You are invited, invited to be a part of this new way, this new kingdom Jesus introduced. If you find yourself not being able to live up to, forget, forget religious standards, not even being able to live up to your own standards, right? You're not the spouse you want to be, the parent you want to be, the friend you want to be, the person you want to be, right? The invitation is open to begin to view the world differently and live the way that Jesus taught to live because God is near. And if you're already a follower of Jesus, right? Then the time has come to begin to do something pretty difficult sometimes. And that is when your way and Jesus's way seem to clash with each other and are bumping into each other, it's time for you to start yielding to Jesus's way. And here's the good news. Because when you yield to Jesus, when you say yes to Jesus, you aren't saying yes to a list. You aren't saying yes to a law. You aren't saying yes to a system that seems to be there just to, 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 to manipulate and control you. You are saying yes to a person, a person who left us with one all-encompassing, simple yet terrifying command, which was this, you are to love others the way I have loved you. Follow me into this different way of life. Levi went on to write the gospel of Matthew. And he, here's one of the unique things that we find in Matthew that we don't find in any other of the gospel accounts. And perhaps Matthew wrote this because of his background and what he was going through and the way Jesus called him out of that. But one day Jesus was teaching and Matthew says, he said this, Take my yoke upon you. That is, take my way of approaching life, my teachings, and the way that I live on you because it's better than the approach that you currently have. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am a gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That is, you will find rest on the inside. You will find peace that you didn't even know existed. And if that vision of faith stands in contrast to the vision that you were taught growing up, then perhaps those who taught you were trying to pour the new wine of Jesus into the old container. And at the end of the day, it just ended up being a great big mess. Because Jesus didn't come to tweak something old. He came to establish something entirely brand new. And when we embrace that is when life begins to change. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I, I thank you just for these, these records that we have of people's experiences of life on earth with Jesus and the teachings and the things that he did and the, the, the examples that he set, the new things that he created. Lord, help us 
to begin to separate ourselves from what has been a universal tradition among religious people of trying to blend the new with the old instead of just completely accepting the new. God, let us turn and accept your teaching, the new way that will bring peace to our souls. Lord, I thank you that everyone, without exception, is invited as they are to follow you. And Lord, for those of us who may have been following you for a long time, let us not fall into the trap of being tolerant for a second, but there only being a time limit of acceptance before they must conform to our behavior to be a part of us. God, let us follow your singular command of loving them as you loved us. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Yeah, thank you so much for braving the cold today. Look forward to next week as we see what happens right after Mary called her son crazy.